0: Well, this morning we reached the halfway point in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we've been exploring this letter under the heading, Rejoicing in the Lord. We've seen that Paul's writing from prison in Rome, but in prison the Lord has revealed to Paul some some major insights into how he can find joy in the Christian life, even as we saw last week in the face of suffering and frustration. As we reach chapter 2 of this letter, Paul turns his attention to another insight he's received from God during his time in prison. According to Paul, a major way in which we find joy in the Lord is through loving and serving one another and the world around us. See, for Paul, joy isn't something you primarily find on your own. Instead, he argues here that God intends for us to find joy through living in community with other Christians as we serve one another and bear with one another. That might be a surprising insight coming from a man in prison. Again, Paul wrote this letter often in isolation. We might expect Paul to outline for us sort of, the path to joy when you're on your own, when you're locked up. And again, throughout history, many people and cultures have been drawn to that idea of the lone mystic or hermit who learns great spiritual truths while sitting on their own. The that, that truth that we cannot learn living in this world. But Paul refuses that rule. For Paul, the authentic Christian life is lived in community with other Christians, even when that is difficult. See, Christian community for Paul is tremendously important. And if Philippian Christians want to experience joy in their relationship with God, they need to see that. They need to live alongside one another and serve one another. Paul says That's the thrust of this chapter. But just pausing for a moment. Because phrases like Christian community and loving and serving one another they sound very attractive. But let's be honest, living in close community with one another is hard work. We experience that all around us. People living close together it's just hard work. Whether that's in a marriage, or in family relationships between parents and children, whether it's sharing a flat with other people. If you get a group of sinful human beings together, there are going to be tensions. It's going to be hard work. We need to be very clear about that. And the life of a Christian church is no exception to the rule. In fact, for many Christians, joining a church can be a painful and disillusioning experience, particularly if they're new to the faith. C.S. Lewis wrote about this with, with a ruthless irony in his book The Screwtape Letters. In that book it's a, the record, record of, a, of a senior devil writing to a junior devil on how he can keep the individual he is tempting from living as a Christian. And the senior devil writes that one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space, and rigid in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. Fortunately, that is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished building on the new housing estate. He goes on. When he gets to his pew and looks around, he sees just that selection of his neighbours whom he wanted to avoid. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbours. Provided that any of those neighbours sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks at church. That, that's right, isn't it? If you come to church expecting to see perfection, then you will be disappointed. Any Christian church is made up of sinners. And as a result, there will be tensions and disagreements and arguments between people. The church in Philippi was no exception. The church at Malden Road is no exception. And yet, Paul calls on us to find joy as we live with one another and serve one another as a church. For all our sins and imperfections, Paul is convinced that a church like the one at Philippi, that a church like this one in Oxford, can become a community marked by love and service of one another and the world we live in. And how is that possible? Well, because Paul believes the living God is committed to transforming us into such a community. Because Jesus Christ himself willingly became a servant for us. And now he reigns over the church, showing us what service looks like. See, Paul believes we can find joy in serving one another and the world because God is committed to showing us that joy if we obey his commands and serve one another. So, how is it possible then for selfish people like us to find joy in serving others? Well, firstly, Paul tells us we can rejoice in serving one another because of what God has done for us individually. That's verses 1 to 4. He says, Every believer is already a recipient of God's lavish grace. See, it's striking to see that though, when Paul wants to urge the Philippians to live, alongside each other, to love and serve one another. He doesn't actually start with them. He starts with God and what He has done in showing His grace towards them. Just read verse 1 for us. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. See, for Paul, Christian service and obedience, they're always in response to God's rich grace towards us. God's grace towards us has a transformative power, according to Paul. So that when we recognise his grace towards us, we then are enabled to show grace to one another. And the list Paul goes through in verse 1 here, it's a list that is true of every single Christian here this morning. See, when we read over verse 1, Paul isn't describing the experiences of an elite group of believers. No, Paul is confident that every single believer in Philippi will know what he is talking about in verse 1. Every single one of them will have experienced this, this lavish grace towards them in their lives. So what are the examples of God's grace we can learn from? Well, first of all, Paul says, we are united with Christ, And we can be encouraged by that as we serve one another. Again, so often we can think of Jesus as, as somewhere up there, sort of perfect, holy, just slightly unapproachable. And we're down here somewhere, sinful, a bit of a failure. We just cannot bring ourselves to approach Jesus. But if that's how you think about Christ, Paul says... Well, you're wrong. You are united with Christ if you're a believer. If you've trusted in him, you are at one with him. You are in Christ, Paul says. You're now one flesh with him. He cares for you as he cares for his own body. Jesus associates with you completely. And no matter how frail or vulnerable you may feel, you actually are completely secure in Christ, And Paul presumes that is true of every believer in Philippi. See, if Jesus Christ is happy to associate himself with us, to be united with us, then how much more should we be willing to associate with one another and to be united with one another? Secondly, Paul says, we are loved by Christ. And as the hymn writer puts it, Christ's love is is the love that will not let us go. Again, love, it's it's such an overused word today. It can be hard to get sort of excited by it. But for Paul, Christ's love is a tangible comfort to every believer because all other experiences of love are so fragile by comparison. As a student, I remember thinking in one of my bleaker moments, that any relationship I was in with a girlfriend was only two bad conversations away from ending. Um, I didn't play the field much, but I was quite bleak and depressive about it. Um, but yeah, to my experience, romantic love was just so fleeting, so fragile. And we see that all around us: marriages break down. Again, friendships seem so fragile; friends fall out, they lose touch. Recent cases like that of, of baby P shows that even the love a mother has for her child cannot always be depended upon. You see, Paul's saying here, Christ's love is different. Christ's love for us is constant and unbreakable. Christ's love for us was demonstrated physically, tangibly on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem. And nothing that happens to us in our lives, can change that fact. My knowledge of Christ's love for me isn't dependent on how my day has been or how my life feels like it's turning out. My knowledge of Christ's love for me is dependent on the cross. And that is a constant reminder that I am loved by him. I remember that fact hitting me as a student during a particularly lonely time. I just thought, well, actually I am loved and I always will be loved. Thank God for that. So, if you're a Christian here this morning, Paul says you can take comfort from Christ's love. Everything else in your life may feel fragile, unstable, unreliable. Everything else may even fade away One day. But the love of Christ will not. And we can always take comfort from that, Paul says. And thirdly, Paul says God's grace towards us means that we have the Holy Spirit with us. We enjoy fellowship with the Spirit, Paul says. And it's worth restating again that Paul is describing God's grace towards every single believer here because when it comes to the Holy Spirit it has become commonplace among many Christians to presume that that some churches have the Holy Spirit while other churches don't and it's certainly true that some churches talk a lot more about the Holy Spirit than others perhaps here at Moderna we're sometimes guilty of not talking about the Spirit enough which in a sense is why it's great that our church weekend away is on that theme experiencing the Spirit just a quick plug for that But Paul presumes that that every single Christian enjoys fellowship with the Spirit. And that is in keeping with the rest of the New Testament's teaching. See, the Holy Spirit is Christ's gift to every believer after his resurrection and ascension. The Spirit is like our deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. The first sign that God has the power to transform us completely for the new creation to come. And Jesus gives him great names. Jesus calls the Spirit our comforter, our helper. And he is already at work in us, changing us, often in slow and imperceptible ways, into people who are more like Christ. The Spirit is at work in us, Paul says. And again, if, if you're a Christian here this morning, I don't know how you describe the state of your heart. It's highly likely that you're very aware of your sin this morning, of of past failures, maybe even this week, maybe even this morning. That you're not who you want to be in your relationship with God and with others in your life. But if that is the case, we need to listen to Paul here. If you're trusting in Christ, the Holy Spirit is at work in you. You might not be who you want to be, yet. Yeah, you might be a long way off from loving God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, from loving your neighbour as yourself. But thanks to the work of his Spirit, you are not what you once were. The Spirit is changing you. Often other people can see those changes better than we can see them ourselves. So we should ask God to show us Ways in which he's changing us. And then of confidence that the Spirit is working in us. He is at work in our lives. We have fellowship with him. And we can take comfort from that as we serve one another, Paul says. And the final demonstration of God's grace to us in verse 1 is that God has shown us tenderness and compassion. And the words translated, tenderness and compassion there, always refer to God's character in the New Testament. And it's important for us to recognize that part of God's character. Because so often we are actually harsher with ourselves than God is with us. We place huge expectations on our shoulders. We grow impatient with our sin, with our lack of growth as believers. We presume that God must be deeply frustrated with us. But Paul says here, remember God's tenderness and compassion towards you. God knows you. He made you. And he knows all about your weakness. That will not come as a surprise to him. He sees our hearts with perfect clarity and yet he deals with us. Not as our sins deserve, but with tenderness and compassion. You see, underpinning all of God's challenges to his people, all of God's commands to his people, is the bedrock of his tender love for them, of his bearing with us, of his patience with us. God is tender and compassionate with you, says Paul. So take comfort from that. Learn from that, of who he is. So verse 1, Paul lifts off God's lavish grace towards every believer. And only then, when they've heard what God has done for them, does Paul turn to challenge the Philippians in their relationships with one another. Verses 2-4 to four, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose... Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility to consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, why should Christians be like-minded in their dealings with one another? Well, Because every single one of us is united with Christ. It's not that we agree with one another, necessarily. We agree with Christ. And what he is doing. Why should Christians show love for one another? Well, because we have each received comfort from God's love, ourselves. And we should share that comfort with one another. Why are selfish ambition, the conceit, so out of place among believers? Because they're all about what we can get for ourselves. But that is not how God has dealt with us. He has freely given us the gift of salvation. And he calls on us to treat one another in a similarly gracious way. See, every one of Paul's appeals to the Philippians in verses 2-4 to is rooted in the grace God has shown to them. And again, we lose sight of that. We don't see God's grace as we should. I am just frequently blind to God's grace towards me so that I am thankless. In my life. I don't trust him as I should. I don't love other Christians as I should because I just think it's all about me. But again, there's even encouragement there in verse 1. Paul doesn't expect we will always fully understand that the riches of being united with Christ, being loved by him. He actually says, if you have any encouragement from being united with him, if any comfort from his love. Paul knows our experience of that will, will fluctuate, will go up and down as our hearts, our emotions, our circumstances change. But he knows that every single believer will experience something of God's comfort, something of what it means to be united with Christ. And he says off the back of that, serve one another, be gracious to one another, recognize that God is gracious to you. So we're to serve one another because Christ has first served us. And Paul goes on to meditate on Christ's service in verses 5 to 11. And in those verses, Paul argues that we can serve one another with joy because Christ has gone ahead of us into glory. Verses 5 to 8. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death, on a cross. See, Paul is convinced the only way selfish people like us can learn to humble ourselves and serve one another is if we see Christ's humility and are changed by it. Again, Paul may be quoting an early Christian hymn in these verses. He may have panned these verses himself. But either way, his meditation on Christ's humility emphasises again and again it was Christ's firm decision to serve us, to humble himself and obey his Father. See, Jesus is the active agent throughout these verses. It's Jesus who initiates his own sacrifice. He did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. Jesus chose to give it up. He made himself nothing, being made in human likeness. Jesus chose to become a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death. Jesus chose to go to the cross. See, Christ chose the way of the cross for us. And as a result, God rewarded him with glory. Verses 9 to 11. See, Christ chose to serve instead of reign. And as a result, he now reigns over the whole universe. And Paul uses Christ's example as a model for the Christian life. There may be service now, and that service may be sacrificial. It may hurt. It may drain you. But actually, the, the, the reward waiting for you is glory, Paul says. We are following in Christ's footsteps when we serve one another. And Christ will reward us in glory. Because you see, when Jesus went to the cross, that wasn't his final destination. as He rose again and he is now seated at the right hand of God. Jesus suffered on his way to glory and joy. And in doing so, he left us the pattern of the Christian life. There will be suffering here, but there will be glory and joy in the new creation. See, Paul points us to Jesus to encourage us here. He doesn't just teach a path of self-denial. Paul is no masochist here. He says, yes, serve one another sacrificially. But know that when you do that, you will follow Christ into glory. Christ is our example. See, we need to pick up our crosses daily if we are following Christ. There is no such thing as the pain-free Christian life. But Paul reminds us, the way of the cross ends with the glory of the resurrection. Every single act of service we perform for one another now will be worth it when we see Christ in glory. Because by serving one another, we are strengthening and encouraging one another so we'll make it to that day. And we will understand then, when we see Jesus, just how fully he has used our acts of service to help others live for Christ, to strengthen weak knees, to strengthen calloused hands. For the journey, we serve now because there is glory in the future for all of us who persevere with Christ. So, Paul calls us to serve one another on the basis of God's grace towards us in the past, on the basis of the glorious future God has in store for us. And finally, Paul calls us to serve one another with joy. Because actually, here and now, God is at work among us. You see, if all we had to go on was was past grace and future glory, then we would struggle enormously to become a church marked by love and service of one another. Paul knows that. But in verses 12 to 13, Paul's clear that no church is in that position. Here and now, today, God is at work in his church. Verses 12 to 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. I can just look over those verses. They, they are mind-expanding verses that help us explore the question that has haunted Christians really throughout history. What is that relationship between God's sovereignty and our responsibility? If God is sovereign, then in what sense am I responsible for my life? Surely His sovereignty overrules my decisions. But then the Word of God keeps treating me as a responsible human being, as someone who can choose to obey God or disobey Him. So how do those two fit together in our experience? Well, in these verses, Paul treats that relationship less as a philosophical question and more as an encouragement to us as we depend on God and obey him in our lives. Verse 12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In some ways, that's sort of restating what he said earlier in chapter 1. Verse 27, when he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, Paul's saying, Christ has saved you when you couldn't save yourself. So worship him. Take him seriously. Seek to trust him and obey him. Your salvation is a gift of God. So honour God for that gift. In our life together, serve one another. Work out your salvation. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Because in doing so, we are demonstrating God's work in us. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Honour the God who has saved you in your own life and in your service of others. But then just in case we were left with verse 12, just in case that, that fear and trembling would just give us the shakes and stop us getting up in the morning, thinking, I can't do this. Well, Paul follows it with verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. God is at work among us, Paul says. God will not leave us alone. Live for him. He is committed to transforming us into people who bear the likeness of his son. See, verses 12 to 13, they encapsulate an awesome truth about the Christian life that's both deeply humbling and enormously encouraging for us. You see, every time I want to do God's will, every time I want to praise God or say no to sin or love someone sacrificially. That's actually not ultimately me at work. That's God working in me. And that means I never get to congratulate myself on what a loving guy I am. I never get to say, well, yeah, I've cracked that sin. I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Instead, God gets the glory for every attitude of my heart that loves him and obeys him. God gets all the glory every time a church member at Malden Road sacrificially loves another. Every time we, we say no to selfishness and instead make time for one another, God gets the glory because that is evidence that God is at work among us. See, that's humbling for us. But it's also so encouraging to us. If it was simply dying to us to have a community of Christ-like people, then we would be lost. If my perseverance as a Christian relied on my own spiritual disciplines, then I would be lost. But God is working in me. And God is working in us. God never leaves us alone to live for him. He actually works in us to help us and change us. So we do. So, so just to encourage you this morning, if you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to grow in your service of others, if you want to stop being the selfish person you know what heart you are, well then you have a powerful ally in that. The living God of grace will help you in that. You're not alone in wanting to change. God is at work in you. And if all that sounds just too good to be true, well then Paul ends this chapter with two solid examples for the Philippians of people they knew in whom God was working. Timothy and Epaphroditus in verses 19 to 30. I mean, we don't have time to look at what Paul says about these two men in any depth, but but he uses Timothy as an example of a faithful and selfless servant of the Gospel, while Epaphroditus, it's someone who has suffered, who, who has struggled with weakness and illness, and yet has remained true to Christ. Paul says, look at these men. God's at work in them, just as he is at work in you. And I've been um, at Modern Roads for nearly six years now. And I can tell you actually, with, with real integrity that I have met and been blessed by many Timothys and Epaphrodituses in my time here. I have been blessed by Timothys, people who have been faithful to the Gospel, who have prayed for me and for the Church, who have shared Jesus with people in their lives, who have just been courageous in that. Timothys are an amazing encouragement to me. And I've been blessed by Epaphrodituses as well by people who struggle with weakness and illness, people who, who just are a shiny example to me, of people who trust in God's sovereignty and God's timing. Epaphroditus nearly died, Paul tells us at the end of chapter 2. But he remained true to Christ. And they are living and breathing examples of God's work among us. I see Timothy's and Epaphroditus' is here. And we can praise God for that. This isn't just abstract. God is actually working among us. And God is committed to making us a community of people who love and serve one another sacrificially. So we should thank God for the Timothys and Epaphrodites as we know. And above all, we should thank God that God never leaves us alone to serve one another. He is at work in us and he is able to change us.